And welcome once again to the Delegator Daily Thought Podcast. If you're left, you just aren't right. Episode number 325, my friends. Uh, and let's kick it off. Stony Brook University professor has, uh, well, she went really, really woke uh, on some police in New York. And this story comes from the New York Post. A New York University professor is drawing heat as being anti-cop and blaming the victim because she condemned uh, two policemen as murderers. These are two Suffolk County police officers. They shot a knife-wielding man who tried to kill them dead. Uh, He left them with serious stab wounds. So this wasn't someone who pulled a knife and the cop said, hey, put down the knife, and he didn't do it, and they, they just shot him. This was somebody who actively attacked them, stabbed them, could have killed them, wanted apparently to kill them. Uh, The professor uh, writes, this was a wellness check. Why didn't they de-escalate the situation? Well, some situations can't be de-escalated. This man, I assume, this was a welfare check, so I assume, a wellness check, they call it. Uh, So I assume this man has a history of mental illness. And oftentimes, people with mental illness, when they're having an episode, they they may grab a knife, a gun, it may be something else, but they may attack and kill people who have nothing to do. Someone could be in the wrong place at the wrong time, could be like these two officers, they were attacked with a knife. Uh, the call initi- was initiated because the man's roommate, he was attacking him, threatening him. So... Are police supposed to just let themselves be stabbed, let innocent people be stabbed because the person doing the damage, committing the violence, may be be mentally ill, may need real help, they're off their meds, whatever the case is, but are we supposed to let them kill people and kill police officers because it's unfair for, because the person has mental, severe mental issues? Other people need to give their lives up for, quote, justice. Is that how it works now? Uh, The professor is named Anna Hayward. Uh, She posted this on a Stony Brook Medicine Instagram update on the condition of the two stabbed officers with its staff and Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison. Uh, She wrote, why did a man have to die? I think we've covered that. He was trying to kill the police officers. Whether he even knew he was trying to do it, he was trying to do it. And the police officers defended themselves. I, I don't know why that's hard to figure out. It, it may be very unfortunate, but again, crazy people are dangerous, as Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Robert Stacy McCain says of the other McCain. It's true. And if someone is crazy and trying to kill you and you defend yourself and take their life, what else were you supposed to do? You letting them kill you wasn't, it isn't going to stop them. Then they kill someone else. The left can't accept this reality that people, whether they're evil or whether they are crazy or a combination, whether they're on some type of medication, they took too much, they didn't take enough, they took two things together, they should, whatever the situation, whatever caused it, when someone's trying to kill you, you have every, every right to defend yourself. And a person who can't see that is so morally retarded, I don't even know 
Uh, I don't even know what level you would rank that as. That's nuclear-grade stupid, basically. Uh, why did a man have to die? She wrote, what about the man they murdered? Apparently, this person doesn't know what the hell murder is. Uh, Hayward brazenly accused using the handle Hyana72. The Suffolk County officers, again, they were responding to a call that the suspect was threatening his roommate with a fire extinguisher. Um, and it gives an, a road you don't really need to know. This was in Medford on December 28th of last month, obviously, when one of the men turned a knife on the officer. Officers, I should say. The man stabbed and seriously wounded two, uh, injured two officers, one with, listen closely, life-threatening neck wounds. Okay, this is not somebody cutting you on the arm. This is someone sticking a knife in your neck. Okay, very easily could die from that. Again, something the left has apparently no, no knowledge of this. They don't grasp self-defense and reality, apparently. Uh, one of the policemen pulled out his firearm and fatally shot the suspect in pretty obvious self-defense. Both officers were taken to Stony Brook University Hospital. A third officer was also transported for minor injuries. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Uh, now, Lou Savello, who is the vice president of the Suffolk County PBA, uh, slammed Hayward's murdered comments as beyond the pale. Uh, he wrote, while a Suffolk County police officer fights for his life after being stabbed in the neck, an anti-police professor slanderously referred to him and his partner as murderers. Uh, that was on the post uh, last evening. Stony Brook University professor Dr. Anna Hayward displayed a stunning level of ignorance when she callously commented on Stony Brook's official page denouncing the police and condemning the actions of these two hero cops who stopped an armed criminal and saved others from harm. Again, the left doesn't recognize morality as you and I do, my friends. Their morality is they get their way. If you do and say what they, they approve of, that's, your, that's moral. That's the only moral code. There's no biblical, there's no... Uh, traditional Western values or Judeo-Christian principles, none of that. If they like it, it's okay. If they don't, it's evil. That's that's how their little minds work. Uh, he also said a quick glance at Hayward's Twitter account reveals numerous anti-law enforcement posts, including calls to defund the police. Well, of course, uh, Stony Brook University must denounce Dr. Hayward's hateful comments and should put an end to the harmful anti-police bias in their program. Uh, he praised the hospital for their, their good work. And Hayward, the mouth, the opinionator, didn't return email requests for comment. Her anti-cop murdered remarks were removed from Instagram, but not before screen, gra screen grabs were taken of them. See, the internet is forever, Dr. Hayward. Stony Brook University officials in a statement Monday night said, we appreciate the members of law enforcement who work to keep our community safe. We are proud of our doctors at Stony Brook Medicine for the quality medical care they provide the injured officers. Uh, we wish them a speedy recovery. The comments made online were from what appears to be a faculty member's private account that is not affiliated with Stony Brook University. Uh, so who knows? They may be playing CYA. They may not. This woman should lose her job, period. 
She did it on a company Instagram account or Twitter account, whatever it was. Yeah, you don't get to use your uh, your company, your employer, social media that way. Okay, you just don't. So as far as I'm concerned, and she apparently has deleted her accounts and, and she's trying to not get any, any uh, blowback from this. But you know what? You flapped your gums, woman, and your chickens. I suspect they're coming home to roost. Good luck getting another job. You sorry, pathetic excuse for a human being. Now, let me see where we will go first. Let's go to Bearing Arms. <clears throat> Tom Knighton, good guy. Here's the headline. Anti-gun op-ed by student. Hardly the gotcha, she thinks it is. And if you've noticed when you argue with people or here on TV, radio show, whatever, people debating guns, gun rights, the Second Amendment, <clears throat> the left, again, they don't understand God-given rights or, or natural rights. That rights are inherent to you. No one gave them to you except God, the Creator, because you're human, you're alive, you have certain rights. One of those is self-defense. And another one of those is the right to keep and bear arms. Our Constitution doesn't give you that right. Second Amendment doesn't give you that right. That right comes from, well, these founders recognized natural rights. It, it consecrates that right, really. It, gives you, it doesn't give you the right, but it protects the right. That's the difference that uh, the left doesn't grasp. It really, really doesn't, my friends. Uh, to them, if you want a gun, you're bad. Period. Use a gun in self-defense, you're bad. I always liked these people, pacifists. I remember a man, he, he had a very passionate, it was years ago, very passionate uh, letter he wrote somewhere. And he talked about if his wife was being raped, he would not use violence to interest, to protect her. And he then proceeded to try to wrap himself in this blanket of, of this robe, rather, of of wonderfulness. Oh, how oh, what a great creature he is. The fact is, him not using violence would allow his wife to be victimized in a most horrible fashion. And it would also, I assume, mean that the man could, when he was done with the man's wife, could do whatever else he wanted. Maybe they have kids. Maybe he wants to rape them. Maybe he wants to beat the, beat the man with a stick. But he's going to go hurt other people. Passivism isn't heroic. It's cowardice. And if you don't like me saying that, I don't care. It's cowardice. It's not a higher plane of understanding. It's not a higher form of thinking. It's cowardice. Period. But let's get to this op-ed. Uh, Tom Knighton writes, Every now and then we see a person who thinks they're clever, only to trot out a tired, debunked argument that there sure is a gotcha moment. And that's especially true, he writes, with anti-gun arguments. <clears throat> and here is an op-ed that was written in the, by a Los Angeles high school student that, uh, well, she tried to use a really, 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 really dumb argument that's been debunked and, and really has no credibility. The op-ed was titled, Opinion, 
The Second Amendment requires gun regulation. And as Tom Knighton writes, you know it's already going south right then. How can we decrease gun violence, the, uh, the letter, letter writer starts. According to the Second Amendment, since a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Although people have the right to bear arms for their own protection, as stated in the Constitution, the Second Amendment also clearly states that this is based on the need for a well-regulated militia, not based on random people being able to have guns. She doesn't grasp it. Clueless. Completely disconnected from reality. She's either never been taught history by, by a credible teacher, or she just has been taught the opposite by a left-wing teacher, who unfortunately, or left-wing teachers perhaps, that unfortunately think that they're smarter than the Constitution and the Founders. <clears throat> Uh, and these are going to be debunked by Tom Knight in a very, very, very efficient fashion. Just a minute here. This can be interpreted, she wrote, to mean that no one except for law enforcement should have more than a num- more than a number of guns or ammunition, because a right to bear arms is for a well-regulated militia. Remember, she, she, and and all the anti-gun, what I call the cult of gun control. They always talk about the well-regulated militia. People do not need, she writes, 10 guns to protect themselves from danger. And they certainly won't need a gun. They can shoot 600 bullets per minute either, like the AK-47 as detailed in Britannica. Now, for a bullet to shoot 600 bullets in a minute, there are 60 seconds in a minute. There are 10, or 60 rather, divided, 600 divided by 60 is 10. There ain't nobody in the world, I don't know, well, maybe there may be someone out there that can pull a trigger of a semi-automatic pistol or rifle 10 times in a second. That's what it would require. That's what it would require. Okay? 600 bullets in a minute. That means 600 bullets in 60 seconds. That means 10 bullets every second. She knows nothing of semi-automatic firearms either. If we limit, she writes, a certain amount of guns per person, making sure that gun owners are well-regulated, then the chance of a mass shooting will be less likely as a gun owner can only own a specific amount of guns and also have regulated ways to use them. Well, she's, it's a massive assumption that someone's crazy, evil, twisted, whatever, is going to, uh, <laughs> is going to control their uh, follow regulations. Okay, it's illegal to shoot people. You think they're going to be stopped by a regulation, as you call it? You foolish, foolish child. Uh, Knighton responds, I'm sure the author and her teachers are very proud for this of her for this argument. Too bad it's an anti-gun argument debunked ages ago by people far better versed in constitutional law than she is. First, this is key, my friends. First, the phrase well-regulated in relation to the time means properly functioning. In other words, something something is working right, it's well-regulated. That's what the founders would have said. Second, the militia refers to the whole body of free people who, could, who can be called upon to defend our nation. Now, who said that? George Mason, who's known as the father of the Second Amendment, and James Madison, who wrote the Second Amendment. 
also agreeing with that is Thomas Jefferson, Franklin, uh, and just keep going. Patrick Henry, Light Horse Harry Lee, George Washington, uh, just keep going and going. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, pretty much all the founders felt the same way. That's what uh, they wanted, was the whole body of free people. And the militia are not all the people. The Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia, yes, but it also says the right of the people. If the founders only meant that uh, militia members could have a right to keep and bear arms, they would have said the right of the militia to keep and bear arms. They didn't. They wrote the right of the people. So obvious, and the left can't see it. Uh, further, the young author here is illustrating just how poor the American educational system actually is because she clearly didn't grasp the totality of the Second Amendment. Well, she's probably never been taught it. She's doing what many anti-gunners do, which is focus on the militia clause. Yet the rest of the amendment read, the right of the people's right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The people shall not be infringed. That part alone debunks the entire premise on which the author based her work. It doesn't say the right to keep and bear arms shall only be for militia purposes. It explicitly states that it shall not be interfered with by lawmakers. And Tom Knight is correct in, in blaming her teachers. And whoever else, maybe her parents, maybe other people, I don't know. Uh, but it seems, he writes, that no one adequately educated her about the context surrounding the Second Amendment. Well, they probably weren't educated that at that either, you know. Uh, I mean, leftism is a form of self self-perpetuating delusion and stupidity. And here's an example. She was likely never taught about our founder, founding fathers' innate distrust of standing armies or how they believed any government had the potential to become tyrannical unless held in check by the citizenry. They never taught her how the Bill of Rights came to be, how many of the amendments were a direct response to actions carried out by the British and how the Founding Fathers wanted to make sure their new nation would not go down the same road. And that does include removing arms from law-abiding citizens. When she wrote, but you don't need 10 guns, yet the Second Amendment doesn't call for such anti-gun regulation as she claims. They never mention a certain amount of guns. No, they don't. It explicitly precludes any such regulation by saying your right shall not be infringed. So this is a, a, a kid that uh, just doesn't know what the heck she's talking about. I hope she gets a better education. I hope someone has already written her back and offered to help her to educate her a little bit. I hope she has the open mind to actually read good responses to her and maybe she will start to see how things actually are, what rights certainly are, and what the Second Amendment actually says, what the rest of the Constitution actually says. Now, <clears throat> let me ask this question. The lid asked this question, and it's a good one. We're coming to a time uh, when this is going to be a question you need to ask yourself, are you a thought criminal? Hmm. Very 1984-ish. Michael Snyder put this up at the lid, lidblog.com. 
If we are not free to think what we want, he writes, we do not have a free society. It really is that simple. Unfortunately, there is now an overwhelming consensus among elitists in the Western world that radical measures must be instituted to control people's thoughts. Or at least the expression of them, I guess maybe he should have said. He writes, if you insist on being a rebel, there's a very good chance that you will be punished for holding unorthodox views. You won't necessarily be put in prison, but our system has countless other ways to punish you. And these are starting to show up in various news stories. For example, those who insist on embracing unacceptable thoughts will find that their career choices are quite limited. I've talked to you before about resumes I've sent out and I had more than one person call me to interview me and mention my social media in the interview. Bring it up. Kind of kind of talk about it a little bit. And since it was a job interview, I didn't want to say, you know, I think you're you're going past your, your limitations on invading my privacy. I don't think that has anything to do with the job and you can stick it. But I wanted a job. You know, it, it helps when you got bills and stuff. <clears throat> and there are certain positions that will, they will be prohibited from ever holding under any circumstance. In other words, some jobs now are just, no matter your qualifications, you'll just never get them because of things you may have written on Facebook, Twitter, uh, whatever social media you use. Think about that. That time is coming quickly, my friends. Uh, we're in 2022 and 1984 ain't that far away. Sounds backwards, but then again, everything leftism does is backwards, even time. Uh, let me see what else he says. If you need to think about this, if your thoughts are offensive enough, you may suddenly have a financial account shut down or credit denied for seemingly no reason. The wrong person saw something you wrote. Oh, wait, he banks with us. I don't think he banks with us anymore. We, my pillow guy has been attacked for it. Uh, he got some, some bank issues. Uh, Kanye West has. Of course, Kanye West is an idiot. It's hard to feel sorry for an anti-Semite prick like him. Uh, who's just, I think the man has mental issues, seriously. But uh, again, that shouldn't matter to a bank. If you're law-abiding, unless you break some financial rules, okay. But for expressing a view someone doesn't like or a lot of people don't like or 99% of the people don't like, does that mean your bank should shut you down, that your boss should call you in and fire you? Those days are coming. Maybe you shouldn't be able to shop at certain grocery stores. Maybe you shouldn't be able to buy certain kind of uh, clothing products or, or foods or transportation. That ain't that far away, my friends. This sort of thing was unheard of a decade ago, but now it is happening all the time. Of course, you can forget about having a substantial social media presence if your thoughts do not conform to current societal norms. Even the free speech platforms ban and shadow ban countless accounts daily. If you've been checking on the Twitter files... You know it's true. If anything I have just described has happened to you, that is probably because you, you are a thought criminal. You are not supposed to contradict the conditioning you have received from our education system, the news media, our politicians, and the corporate entertainment you are being fed for hours each day. 
when you deviate from socially acceptable viewpoints, you are guilty of thought crime. This is how thought crime is defined by Wikipedia. Now, it comes from the book 1984 by George Orwell, or it's coined rather by George Orwell uh, in 1984, which was written in 1949. It describes a person's politically unorthodox thoughts, such as beliefs and doubts, that contradicts the tenets of Ingsoc, English socialism, the dominant ideology of the place called Oceana. In the official language of Newspeak, the word crime think describes the intellectual actions of a person who entertains and holds politically unacceptable thoughts, thus the government of the party that controls speech, the actions, and the thoughts of the citizens. Uh, And again, I, I hate to tell you that day ain't far away. There's a lot more there to read. Go to Lidblog, check that out. And... You know, your freedom may cost you. It may come to the the point where more and more people and the left wants this to happen, that they have to say, yeah, I have a right to say it, but what's it going to cost me? What's going to cost my kids? What's it going to cost? Hell, it may cost you your kids, custody of them. What's it going to cost me uh, legally or financially or just in living everyday life, our membership at a gym, it really is limitless. And that day is coming. So be wary. And I guess we need to hunker down and and learn to fight the battles. And it's going to hurt a lot of people. But the left doesn't care about that. Never have, my friends, and they never, ever will. Now our final story comes from american greatness ken masugi uh wrote this it is called who who will free the enslavers and away we go with this my friends when the 118th congress is sworn in on january the third its members will walk the halls of a building whose paintings and statues pay homage to 141 enslavers Thus begins one of the lowest of the low points in the history of the Washington compost. And yes, I did say compost. In this lengthy attempt to portray how slavery was implicitly honored in the choices for subjects of the artwork inside the U.S. Capitol. The Washington Post is so woke. Maybe we should, we should change it to the wokeness post. Uh, But the ploy doesn't work. First, the pictures are not self-explanatory. How many of the pieces portray the, quote, enslavers brutalizing their property? How would we know these people are, quote, enslavers without further context or explanation? The left doesn't believe in context. Context is whatever they say, and you just believe it or else. Does the artwork depict uh, the selling or buying of their slaves? Or do they portray men doing manly things? Generals, are they chosen from a particular state? More more precisely, let us say more about this enslaver word. What justifies its usage? We would have to know about the subject's character and deeds. 
Slave owner may have been one trait, but surely there were others as well. Are the subjects recall, recalled in art because they own slaves? Washington, Franklin, and Jefferson are or used to be known to Americans for many other reasons. Of course, given the longevity of wokeness, everyone now knows that George Washington owned slaves. How he treated them and planned for them is another perhaps paramount issue. And there's a link there. Click that link. Read about what he did, how much he worried about his slaves, how he uh, ordered them to be freed at his uh, at his demise, and how he wanted them taken care of. He wanted to be them to be able to have lives. He didn't really want them anymore, but there were penalties and other things in in place that made him really practically impossible for him to free them if he cared anything about them. It's a very complex issue, but read it and read some of the other side. Context, my friend. Context is your friend. The left, I wish to God they even understood what context was. How his consciousness concerning, concerning who his slaves were is also of note, but not those interested in compiling numbers. These types would overlook the importance of a world in which the distinction between military and civilian rule is essential and an eventful break. Washington was the decisive person to make real that distinction in the modern world. But to the post-readers, that isn't relevant. Jesse Jackson claimed the United States was under military rule during the first years of the Constitution. Surely the purpose of the lengthy essay and illustrations, including an interactive version of for online readers, was not to make slavery routine and therefore acceptable. No, clearly the purpose is to horrify and make these men and one woman, Martha Washington, being enslaved is the most fundamental fact about them. Perhaps even to the point of inspiring some to want to vandalize the paintings and statues and awoke January 6th orgy. How can they deny this would be one purpose of such a lengthy diatribe? And I've not read the whole piece in the Washington Compost. Uh, you have to pay to read their stuff now. So even fewer people read their stuff. But let's stick with the political purpose behind the probe. To extend the reach of the New York Times 1619 project, to show that the mentality of the artist was to accept the evil of slavery. Why else are those portraits and statues there? But this project is betrayed by the Post's concession. The Post writes, Just as governments and institutions across the country struggle with the complex and contradictory legacies of celebrated historical figures with troubling racial records, so too... Uh, does any effort to catalog the role of the capital's artwork subjects is in the institution of slavery. The post-analysis, for example, includes at least four enslavers, Ben Franklin, John Dickinson, Rufus King, and uh, Bartolome de las Casas, I hope I didn't pronounce his name, but I probably did, who voluntarily freed the people they enslaved and publicly disavowed slavery while they were living. At one time, they could, might have been called enslavers. Later, they couldn't have been called enslavers. And to understand those people or anything about them, you'd have to understand why, wouldn't you? You'd have to actually be educated on them. 
But again, the left doesn't dig education. They dig indoctrination. Other people, such as Daniel Webster and Samuel Morse, were the vocal defenders of slavery, but did not themselves enslave people. Artworks honoring them are not counted in the post tally. Here, the Post makes a concession that exposes this dishonesty of their own story. If it overcounts and undercounts for some for the reason they give, then many, if not most, of their categories are absurd on their face. First, it would be difficult to say that Daniel Webster of New Hampshire and Massachusetts was a vocal defender of slavery. It is true he supported the Compromise of 1850, which made concessions to slave states, including federal, federal fugitive slave laws, but did that choice, one that could have been made for any number of reasons, in itself really make him a vocal defender of slavery? Again, context. And actually studying something. Not just assuming, not jumping to every bad conclusion you can and becoming as outraged as you can as fast as you can. That doesn't help anybody. The Post admits the possible over-inclusion of those who freed their slaves and, in a puzzling form formulation, publicly disavowed slavery while they were living. The Spanish priest, uh, Bartolome de las Casas, protested the enslavement of New World natives, conceded the legitimacy of enslaving Africans, and then came to condemn all slavery. But most stunning of all, the Post does not count George Washington among anti-slavery Americans. After all, if the Post decided to write about the anti-slavery freedom national statesmen, they wouldn't need to start with Washington, that is, those who owned slaves who eventually freed them. The way the Post counts, one apparently can never erase the mark of having owned slaves. That's the way it works with them. However they can smear you, they will, and nothing else counts. Something people forget, he writes, after all, is that a slave was expensive. I often ask self-righteous students who insist they would not have owned slaves whether they have ever voluntarily given away anything as valuable as a slave, like a car. Uh, this is not com to compare a person to a car, but to make the student understand the degree of sacrifice involved in the choice they purport to think was so easy. As I said with Washington, there, was, there were circumstances and laws in place that made it almost entirely impossible. I further asked them if they have ever considered the risk of retaliation from former property, as one quite reasonably might expect from an angry former slave. <clears throat> Some guy named Abraham Lincoln warned against such self-serving moralizing in his Peoria address in October of 1854. He did, however, note the unanimity, a unanimity, excuse me, North and South condemning the character of the slave trader. Lincoln said, before proceeding, let me say that I think I have no prejudice against Southern people. They are just what we would be in their situation. If slavery did not now exist among them, they would not introduce it. If it, did now, if it did now exist among us in Illinois, we should not instantly give it up. This, I believe, of the masses north and south. Doubtless there are individuals on both sides who would not hold slaves under any circumstances and others who would gladly introduce uh, slavery anew if it were out of existence. 
we know that some southern men do free their slaves, go north, and become tip-top abolitionists, while some northerners, once they go south and become most cruel slave masters. But the post proceeds without any of Lincoln's charity, which too many uninitiated readers must take for a lack of moral certitude on Lincoln's part about the evil of slavery. What he was saying was just truth. Truth is neither moral or immoral. Truth is truth. Late in the Civil War, he would write a letter to newspaper editor Ed Albert Hodges, and Lincoln would say, I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is. <clears throat> Moreover, why isn't the signing of the Declaration, the subject of the first painting interpreted in this article, presented as anti-slavery painting? After all, slavery was legal in all the colonies after independence. The New England and Mid-Atlantic states prohibited it. In uh, Chief R Justice Roger Taney's view of the, of the Declaration, it was signed by slaveholders that must be pro-slavery. But that was not the view of most of its signatories, who knew the difference between compromise of tactics and compromise of principle. But what prevails today is the understanding of Taney, not the writings or deeds of Washington and Jefferson, as we see in the presumption of the post feature. Of course, the Democrats expunged the bust of Taney, that is to say the icon, thinking that Thereby, they also vanquished the evil principle. Ironically, that principle remains despite the fulminations and, in fact, because of them. Democrats, like the, uh, like the author of the Post article, confuse anti-racism with anti-slavery. No matter values like taste change. Why not have a feature article on gender fluidity deniers in capital art? In my preferred presentation of capital art, who would be the anti-enslavers be? Lincoln? John Brown? John Quincy Adams? What about Ulysses S. Grant? Brought up in an Ohio abolitionist family, but his wife bought him slaves in their marriage, or brought him slaves in their marriage, which he used. He didn't free them. He used them. At the farming property in Missouri, her family gave him. But if we allow Grant to avoid the tarnish of enslaver on account of the liberation of the Union Army brought to thousands of slaves, where does this end? The statue of Grant that stands on guard on its west side facing the mall answers the post-silly categorization of him as an enslaver. Consider as well John Marshall Harlan, the Kentucky enslaver who served in the Union Army and afterwards became the great dissenter on the U.S. Supreme Court, writing uh, dissenting opinions, expanding the scope of the Reconstruction Amendments, including colorblind constitution, dissent of Plessy versus Ferguson. Can there be a greater example of an enslaver who transformed himself into a Republican citizen? And to make things even more perplexing, what of enslaver Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's vice president, the man who would succeed President, uh, president Lincoln when he was assassinated? Now, Johnson barely escaped Senate conviction after having been impeached by the House. 
Lincoln chose Johnson, whom he appointed as military governor of Tennessee, as his vice president in order to promote a post-war national unity. Johnson opposed secession and eventually supported emancipation. Indeed, on August 8, 1863, in Tennessee, preceded June, uh, June 10, 1865, in Texas, as Emancipation Day. Thus, Johnson presided over the liberation of slaves in Tennessee, including his own. None of this ennobles his position to Reconstruction, but we today should at least acknowledge that it is harder for a slave owner to take the lead and emancipate his own slaves and those with family, friends, and neighbors and political allies than to pontificate about the evils of slavery in the abstract, as the bloviator Charles Sumner did. The post-attempt to take down concludes. When the Taney bus was first proposed in 1865, they write, many lawmakers condemned the idea of honoring him because he had written the Dred Scott decision. Senator Charles Sumner, uh, a Republican from Massachusetts, said on the Senate floor that the name of Taney is to be hooted down the page of history. Judgment is beginning now, and an emancipated country will fasten upon him the stigma which he deserves. Sumner was right, but he probably didn't anticipate that it would take a century and a half. Lincoln destroyed Taney's arguments on behalf of slavery as a source of American exceptionalism. If one agrees with Lincoln, why present a long denunciation derived from Taney of the art in that capital as pro-enslaver? It makes far more sense to see that the artwork honored those who acted, fought, and died on behalf of freedom. And freedom means not only the right not to be a slave. Lincoln defines slavery as you work and I eat. By this appropriate definition, definition of slavery, the post count will, in fact, have to be altered, as all wokeness will, because wokeness is just so intellectually, morally, corrupt. It's indescribable. It really is. I've said for a long time, studying the war between the states for so many years, going on 50 years now, damn, I'm getting old, (laughs) has given me, as I describe it when people ask about it, complicated issues, complicated times, complicated men, uh, you know, here in, in Virginia and in Richmond, and I do not live in Richmond, there used to be a Monument Avenue with beautiful statues. One was to A.P. Hill. It was the last one to come down, a Confederate general. Now, A.P. Hill, is, is, his statue had to come down because he, was, he would be labeled as an enslaver. He opposed, morally opposed slavery. He hated it. There was an incident uh, in Virginia where A.P. Hill once resided, where a black man was killed, and A.P. Hill made it his mission to make sure that the white men who did it were convicted and punished severely for that murder. He was morally, he called morally, uh, he, he called slavery morally repugnant, yet his statue had to come down. I don't understand that. 
The man didn't fight for slavery. He fought because Virginia left the Union. Virginia left the Union because Lincoln called for 75,000 troops. And Virginia felt that, you know, these states that, that seceded, Virginia initially voted not to secede, remember, as did Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee, before finally joining the Confederacy, after Lincoln's call for troops. There would have been no secession for those states had Lincoln said, the South has a right to secede, let them go. And whatever you feel about the right to secede, that's that's what you feel, that's fine. But to take a man's statue down without any context, as they did to A.P. Hill, is despicable. Uh, John Mosby, the Grey Ghost, found slavery morally repugnant. He fought for the Confederacy. Now, he would argue that many Confederates did fight for that, but he still fought because Virginia was his home, Virginia was invaded, and he had to defend his state. That's a very commonly held uh, moral stance, I guess you'd call it, for many Confederates. The other statues that came, Jeb Stewart, gorgeous statue of him on his horse. And Jeb Stewart had to go because he fought for slavery. He hated slavery. He had two slaves in his life that were given to him uh, when he got married by, I believe, his bride's family. He freed them because not only, not only Jeb Stewart, but his whole family found slavery morally repugnant. They did not believe in slavery. And he told a, uh, a union friend, and they would soon fight against each other, that if Virginia seceded, he would go with wherever, wherever his state and the fate of his state would be his fate. And yet people today can't have the common sense or don't have to, to think and look back at those people and go, wow, he had principles. I may not agree, I may agree, but this man didn't fight for slavery. But a statue still came down. Stonewall Jackson. He did own slaves. He also built in uh, Lexington, Virginia, a Sunday school to teach blacks, free and slave, to read. He broke Virginia state law to do that. And up to his death in war, he always made sure that he contributed more money to that Sunday school. He was deeply, deeply passionate about educating black people. And he too, again, some people fault him for it. He was very much the guy who said, God is allowing this. Who am I to argue with God? He was, I guess you'd call him a Calvinist. Uh, but Jackson was a man who deserves a lot of thanks and praise for what he did at the time, risking his own, his own life to educate black people. But his statue had to come down because wokeness. Robert E. Lee said himself after the war uh, that if he could have freed every, uh, uh, if he could have sacrificed slavery, the institution, to avoid war, he would have. If he could have freed every slave and avoided war, he would have. 
Now, some people have smeared him of late as a cruel slave owner. I've found no evidence of it, except for one guy who has no credibility, quite frankly. But after the war, Lee was one who urged reunification. We're one country again. He's also taught at VMI, or not VMI, Washington College, which is became Washington Lee College. And at St. Paul's Church in Richmond, on one Sunday shortly after the war had ended and he had surrendered his army, he sat in the church there. And there were a few parishioners around with him. <clears throat> a gentleman entered, well-dressed gentleman, walked down the aisle, went to the altar of the church, got down on his knees and began to pray. Now there was some confusion and consternation and maybe some outrage, I don't know. <clears throat> because this man who had come in and, and began to pray was a black man. And of course, if you know anything about the South after the war, you know that no one human being has ever had any more influence on a former nation, on a section of the country than Robert E. Lee did. And Robert E. Lee rose and proceeded down the aisle to that same altar. And a short distance away from this black gentleman who was praying, Robert E. Lee got down on his knees and prayed alongside him. You want to talk about a powerful message? There was no more powerful message any Southerner could have ever possibly made that, hey, we're one country now. Slavery's done. God ended slavery in his own way. Lee always believed that. That God would end slavery. That God would find a way. And yet Lee's statue had to come down. And his name has to be smeared and trashed. Why? He fought because his state, his home, was invaded. Of all the words Lee ever said or heard, he said, duty is the most sublime word in the English language. I'm paraphrasing. Lee was a good and noble man. I know he's been trashed of late by even some gutless Republicans who apparently never read a history book. But when Lee knelt beside that black man, that was an extremely powerful message. Did it make everything in the future rosy and bright? And No, of course not. But trust me, that was a very powerful message. And Lee became one of the advocates for, yes, educating blacks, letting them work along with General Beauregard. Maybe he, Beauregard might have been the most passionate. But his statue had to come down in New Orleans, despite the fact he was one of the best friends of black people after the war. But it didn't matter. He had been a Confederate general, and that's all that mattered. Unbelievable, my friends. There were other Confederates who spoke quite passionately about equality and civil rights and integrating black people into society. 
Now, it might not be as progressive as what we have today. But again, remember the time these people lived in. They're pretty radical for the time they lived to make the statements they made. But their statues still had to come down. Statues of Confederate soldiers on every courthouse lawn in every county in the South, just about. Pretty much the same statue. Honoring the men and boys who marched off to war from that county. That's all they are. Simple monuments to their service. But somehow they're evil now. Somehow they must be erased too. Because they were nothing but enslavers according to the left. That's not the woke way to go through life. Not to be really awake. You can be woke without being awake apparently. And without being educated. It's nothing but a bunch of ignorant, hateful fools attacking every person who's ever been an icon in this country. Ever. And if you don't think that includes the 54th Massachusetts Colored Regiment, which fought to end slavery in the war between the states, an incredible sacrifice that brave regiment made, just remember the Wokers, they tore up their monument too, along with another uh, Union general. It, a man playing Fred, Frederick Douglass, bringing history to life, he was accosted verbally. This is about erasing this country. That's what it's about. And I'm sure Mr. Masugi agrees with that. But it's an important piece. It's a good piece. Thank him for writing it. Thank you for listening today. Remember, history is not simple. It's complicated. And we have to actually try to understand it. Or we'll never, ever learn anything. Uh, And thank you for listening. I do appreciate it. Remember uh, to pray for the Buffalo Bills player. That young man who's lying in the hospital. Still fighting for his life. Dahmer Hamlin. Uh, Damar Hamlin, excuse me, uh, just 24, and God bless him, God bless his family, and I hope he recovers very soon, and maybe will return to the football field. Remember to pray for him and his family, and it's just a, a sad thing, unexpected, sad, and a lot of people are praying for you, Damar. I know you can't hear me, but With the help of God's angels, maybe you can. So God bless you and get out of that hospital soon tomorrow. Uh, God bless all of you. Hope you had a great holiday. It's a new year. And I wish you all the peace and happiness you can have in this new year. And I hope, hope that uh, in 2024, this country wakes up and votes to begin the recovery of this country from the last a little over two years now, right at two years now, of the left's assault on everything American. God bless y'all. Take care. If you're left, you just ain't right. Go Gators. And yes, if you're left, you just ain't right. And yes, God bless America. I'll talk to y'all soon. Take care. Be good. Bye for now.